Hello, I'm Steph. And I'm Mel. This is East Asia for All, a podcast about East Asian pop culture and media. If you're listening right now, you, like us, probably also have an addiction to East Asian films, cartoons, memes, music, and much, much more. Between the two of us, we've lived on and off in China, Taiwan, and Japan since 2007. We also both have PhDs in Chinese history and are now working as professors. I'm at St. Olaf College in the Departments of History and Asian Studies. And I'm at Monmouth University in the Department of History and Anthropology. So we're taking our love for East Asia, our experiences there, and the knowledge we've gained in the Ivory Tower and bringing it to you. Today we're going to talk about an amazing manga or Japanese graphic novel series called Showa by Shigeru Mizuki. But before we start, we should mention some important collaborators in our exploration and thinking about Mizuki's Showa. Yeah, so we read the first volume, 1926 to 1939, in my Modern East Asia class at St. Mary's University in spring 2019. And I read the first and second volumes, which 1926-1939, also 1939-1944, with my Asian cultures class in the fall semesters of 2018 and 2019. We learned so much by working through these texts alongside our students, and so we wanted to acknowledge their intellectual contributions. And although Showa has won Mizuki many prizes, including the nomination for an Eisner Award, Mizuki is actually most well known for his art, which explores yokai, or kinds of spirits, demons, and ghosts in Japanese folklore. So if you're familiar with Mizuki, you probably know him from this spooky and more otherworldly genre, especially for the character Kitaro. And some of that otherworldly yokai magic is sprinkled throughout Showa. But lucky for us, Showa is mostly about history because Mizuki is also a bit of an amateur historian. Who is also a piece of history himself, really. That's right. Mizuki was born in 1922, just a few years before the end of the Taisho period, which began in 1911 with the death of the Meiji Emperor, and ended in 1926 with the death of its namesake, the Taisho Emperor. The Taisho era was a kind of roaring 20s period in imperial Japan, though it was interspersed with some growing right-wing fascist repression of leftist movements. Yeah, so Mizuki was born during this period of what historians call Taisho democracy, but when he finally came of age, it was, unfortunately, during the height of Japanese militarism and fascism in the late 1930s and early 1940s. We've actually had a previous interview episode with Dr. Alan Christie about wartime Japan called Nosaka Akiyuki and the Legacies of Imperial Japan, in which we discuss the Yakeato Sedai, or the generation of burnt out ruins, which is the whole generation of Japanese people who came of age too late to go to war and instead experienced firsthand the U.S. firebombings. Right. And most of you probably know Nosaka Akiyuki as the author of the story um, that was turned into the anime Grave of the Fireflies. Bring out the Kleenex. Mm, Yeah, that was a really, really, really tough episode to do research on. Lots and lots of crying. (laughs) And this episode will touch on some similar themes. Japanese colonialism and fascism, victim versus victimizer consciousness. But it's really important to stress that Mizuki belongs to an older generation than Nosaka. And he actually went off to war as part of the Imperial Japanese Army and then came back to a very, very different Japan. And that's really what his manga Showa is all about. That's right. 
It's autobiographical, and it's named for the Showa period from 1926 to 1989. Can I go out on a limb here and say that this period was also named after an emperor? I think so. And <laughs> he's probably the most well-known emperor in the U.S., Emperor Hirohito, or the Showa Emperor. Surprising fact, Hirohito was actually the longest reigning emperor in Japanese history. True. But from Mizuki's account in Showa, we can see that he also reigned over some dark, dark times in Japanese history. Yes. In this massive four-volume series, over 2,000 pages, Mizuki not only tells the story of his life, growing up in the 1920s and 1930s Japan, getting drafted in 1942, being posted in Papua New Guinea, contracting malaria, losing his arm to a bomb explosion, returning back to starvation years in Japan under U.S. occupation. Yeah, it's quite grim. Yeah. But... He also gives historical context and major events, like the buildup of Japanese troops and colonists across China, Korea, and Taiwan. The invasions of Malaysia, Singapore, and Hong Kong. The Philippines and Guam. Wake Island and Indonesia, the former Dutch East Indies. Burma, the South Pacific Islands, Midway Island, the Aleutian Islands. Which should sound really familiar, because most of the Aleutian Islands became Alaska, the 49th U.S. state in 1959. Yeah, the list goes on and on. Mizuki covers a staggering amount of history in the Showa series. And not just war history either. He covers events such as the Great Kanto earthquake in 1923, which was this hugely destructive and important event that triggered massive economic and material hardships for the Japanese people, especially Tokyoites. And after the chaos of the earthquake, there was also vigilante violence against Koreans living in Japan who were deeply discriminated against. And formal arrests of socialists and anarchists who were accused of using the chaos to overthrow the state. Again, it was a very dark period in Japanese history. And Mizuki obviously feels exploited by the Japanese imperial state and the fascist government, particularly when he was a soldier. And he's not alone in that either. Sociologist Ueno Chizuko argues that post-World War II Japan essentially developed a victim consciousness, especially symbolized by the dropping of the atomic bombs. But some Japanese people also obviously profited from the war. And Mizuki doesn't shy away from that either. Right. He even discusses his grandfather, who set up a business in Java, Indonesia, which was a Dutch and then a Japanese colony. And he's a great example of how, in the midst of a lot of suffering, some Japanese people leveraged that into a living, if not wealth. And we should also stress that Mizuki expresses a lot of guilt over the atrocities that Japan committed during the war. Yeah, he covers so many atrocities in Showa that are frankly still deeply controversial today. Um, he explicitly portrays the Nanjing Massacre, for example, as an atrocity that was carried out by the Japanese. But at the same time, he doesn't focus on the event to a great extent, and he implies within the writing that it was a one-time massacre rather than the months of looting, torture, rape, and killing that it actually was. Right. And we should acknowledge that in this brief treatment of the Nanjing massacre, could it be not only for political reasons, but also because of the scope of the project? You know, it's mm -hmm. a long period of time after all, right? 1926 to 1989. Um, there's an overwhelming amount of historical information, but really overall, his narrative really fits the victim consciousness narrative. 
And his portrayal of his relationship with the Tolai people is also both sincere and problematic. Right. Another really good point. He does not portray them as having lives or personalities beyond their relationship with him. And they're often depicted in a really stereotypical way as kind of noble savages. Now, of course, the medium, manga, with comic panels and limited text also doesn't always give a lot of space for this kind of analysis. But that visual aspect is also kind of a plus and why we kind of love using Showa in the classroom. Right. It has different kinds of artistic styles. Some figures are cartoonish. Some are photorealistic. And like some of his other characters, his yokai characters, Mizuki's character is also an odd child. And frankly, kind of an odd adult. Yeah, he's. I think he would agree with us. A little odd, a little weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it makes for a really fun perspective, especially for such a dark topic. Yes, it's a total pleasure to read with students. And even though its marching pace through historical events can be really dizzying, it also opens up all of these moments for conversation about a history that is really difficult to discuss. And that's really why Mizuki created Showa, to help people discuss it, to make sure that no one, especially Japanese youth, forget the horrors of the war, not only for Japan, but for the world. Now, today, to help us discuss uh, this graphic novel, graphic novel series, we have brought in a special guest, Dr. Marianne Rett, uh, who specializes in the history of graphic novels. We really enjoyed our conversation with Marianne, and we hope that you enjoy it too. Thanks for listening. Today, we have an interview with Dr. Marianne Rett on graphic novels as history and used in the classroom as part of our episode on Showa. So I thought we would start by asking you, Marianne, to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us about your research. I am Marianne Rett. I'm a professor at Monmouth University. And although I was trained as a world historian, I've become a comics historian in recent years. I teach classes using comics. I teach a whole class just about comics and graphic novels. And uh, I mix my more traditional research with this new avenue. Um, My most recent book is looking at how Islam is portrayed in comics from the turn of the 20th century. Thanks so much, Marianne. We're so excited to have you here today because we also really aspire to um, use graphic novels in our own teaching. And so we were hoping you could talk a little bit today about why you find graphic novels useful in the classroom and specifically what the visual aspect allows for in the classroom that maybe traditional text doesn't? Sure. So using comics in the classroom, I've been doing this for about 10, 15 years, although I was first introduced to them when I was doing my master's work at the University of Arizona. And we used Persepolis in a big 350-person humanities of the Near East class. And I found then that students engaged with this topic, in particular, the Iranian Revolution, in a way that the traditional textbooks just didn't encourage. You know, and 
partly it was probably the simplicity of it. It was also partly the novelty of it. It was certainly back in the day when nobody was assigning comic books and, and graphic novels in a college classroom, at least not really beyond maybe Mouse. And so there was that element of it. But when I started talking to my students and then I started to assign my own comic books and graphic novels in the classroom and I asked them what they liked about them, a lot of them said that they liked the different elements that it brought, that it allowed them to imagine and reimagine the text through the visual elements. And I always tell my students, the first thing is you're going to have to read whatever I give you twice because you're reading it for the text, but you're also reading it for the visual elements. When they accept that they're going to have to read everything twice, they realize that there really is a second story or a third or a fourth story going on in the background to the text. And they like that depth that it gives them. Yeah, that's a really good practical tip. And coming off of that, you know, wonderful description, it might seem a bit counterintuitive, but I'm going to ask, because you've written about this, what is up with this denigration of graphic novels? And why do you think that this genre has often attracted scorn? I think there's a couple of elements to it. First off, the genre, as it were, of graphic novels is relatively recent. Um, You know, there's debate in comic study circles about when it actually started. But if we say with Will Eisner and and his work, you know, it's, it's only the last few decades that we've had this complete sequential art in a novel-like form. So there's that element that it's it's just relatively new. There's the element that people don't know what a graphic novel is. They think graphic first, they're going to think it's going to be violent or sexually risque or something like that. And it, of course, simply just refers to a visual element. And then novel, they automatically assume it's going to be fiction. And of course, anybody who's read, you know, many graphic novels are going to know that they're largely often not fiction. Um, Mouse, again, for example, Persepolis, um, and many of the other really well-known ones just aren't fiction, and they don't know how to kind of deal with that. And then there's the element, the fact that they come out of comic books and comics more broadly, and, and just the whole history of sequential art, particularly in the United States, and this is also true in places like Canada and uh, Great Britain, we went through the the anti-comics era with the work Seduction of the Innocent by Frederick Wortham and the creation of the Comics Code Authority, and it really just took the teeth out of comics, as it were. And the comics that were being produced were for little kids, and they were kind of boring and kind of infantile. And so people just assumed comics were always that way. But of course, if you start looking to the pre-comics code authority comics, you find that they really weren't kids things. They were really very much meant for older audiences. Although there were certainly kids comics, they were pretty serious stuff. And I think we have this sort of cultural amnesia, particularly in the United States, about that longer history of the depth of what a comic can offer. Yeah, that's so interesting because I certainly feel that I felt that very strongly the first time I ever went to Japan and saw that people were engaging with manga and comics in this way that people in the U.S. didn't at all. I think that kind of historical amnesia clearly is present. 
And I think too, with the discipline of history, what you bring up, Marianne, about this kind of resistance to teaching with graphic novels, um, because they're kind of perceived as fiction, seems like one impediment. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what other reasons, like why history in particular kind of comes alive with graphic novels, as you said earlier, maybe more engagement, or are there other reasons to teach history with graphic novels? So there's a couple of elements, right? There's teaching history using a graphic novel that is written as history. So in that case, I'm thinking of something like Trevor Getz's Abena and the Important Men, or even Will Eisner's take on the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and, and showing that propagandist history that was related to that. These are texts that are written, well, not just texts, these are visual works that are written to give an element of history light. And often, and I think this speaks to the history of comics, often they are telling stories that are largely forgotten in traditional textbooks. Um, so Abena, as an example, you know, you're getting a story about the late 19th century in Africa, about women's rights, about the place of women in society, about the question of continued slavery, legal voice, and all of that. This is a story that would have never been told in a traditional textbook because the primary documents that Getz had to work with just really weren't there. So the comic in this particular case, the graphic novel, allowed Getz to build the story and develop a visual sense to go along with the very fragmentary pieces that were there. Then there's the other element of comics as history. And in this case, you look at something like Barefoot Gen and the bombing of Hiroshima and the Japanese experience during World War II. And of course, this is written, A, it is a fictionalized account of what happened, and it's written several years after the bombing, but it gives students a real sense of what it was like to be in Japan during World War II in a way they're not going to get from a scholarly text looking back on it because it is that firsthand account in giving us a better sense of a personal per perspective on the war. But going beyond a biography, which is what you could do, the visual element adds in so much more depth. So again, going with Barefoot Gen, you get all of this visual cue about the types of songs that are being sung, what towns would have looked like, the dress people are wearing, and it, it's more depth to that narrative that they probably are just getting from a straight, uh, linear, historical, unvisual history book. And I've definitely found, because I've also I think once used a graphic novel in the classroom, my students really loved the images, really loved being able to see, as you said, what people's clothes looked like, what what their what the world looked like in the time period that they're studying. Mm -hmm. And it really made me think about how we live in a very visual world, especially in the way that people engage with the internet. I mean, Instagram, Snapchat, images really seem to be the most common way that young people communicate with each other. 
And so I might assume that most of my students have developed a somewhat decent visual literacy. But you mentioned in one of your articles that instructors shouldn't assume too much capacity on the part of our students to read and understand the imagery and symbolism used. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, a really good example of that is Sean Tan's The Arrival, which is, for lack of a better word, a graphic novel, but there is no written material in it. There is no text, at least nothing that anybody can read. It's sort of alien language, I guess. And so my students have to deconstruct this entire narrative around the visuals. And it's interesting for me to watch them because they get the more obvious stuff. You know, in in essence, it's an immigrant story. And so, of course, being as close as we are to Ellis Island, they've, they've got some sense of that narrative. But asking them to go beyond or deeper into the visuals, you know, how does the author show a lapse of time, for example? Or how does the author give us a sense of the alienness of a new society? Or how do we know that this is a safe place versus a dangerous place? And asking them to deconstruct these symbols asks them to go a lot further. They're very good at the sort of veneer of imagery, but asking them to go deeper is where that our role as educators comes in, right? That we're giving them more tools to work with. The symbols that would have been commonplace in 1900 may not be commonplace today, and they might not get them as symbols. So that's where the history comes in, that we have to give them more of that context to go with the visuals that they're looking at. Yeah, that actually trends. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that I really want to take one of your classes in which you teach graphic novels, but go on. Yeah, sorry. Me too. Sorry, Steph. No, I, didn't I do to interrupt. <laughs> Not at all. Well, I, I think that it touches really nicely on this other issue that you talked about in an article um, that you wrote about Orientalism and the graphic novel. In that uh, issue, you were talking about a crossover issue of the 99 and Justice League of America and writing that the audience frustration with this introduction to um, the issue and characters was, quote, in fact, evidence that the comic book audience is ready and eager to meet Muslim characters, but needs proper context to form a full understanding, end quote. And I think that we clearly really agree with that sentiment and think of, think really carefully about how to provide the proper context when we bring popular culture into the classroom. And I, we we're just wondering if you had any other strategies. I really liked this example that you gave of an assignment that you do with your students in the classroom where you have them choose a bunch of different aspects of the graphic novel to, novel to kind of expand on. So I'm wondering if there are other ways that you provide context or what your kind of strategy is for that. It all depends on the comic that I'm using or the graphic novel that I'm having them read. So when we talk about Islam in comics, you know, I build on the history that is there, right? That for the most part, it really starts with Persepolis, at least in the modern era. And this is really the first time, say, a French audience or an American audience is being given a Muslim character, of course, in this case, it's a real person, to visualize in this way. 
it's become a lot easier to have this conversation since Ms. Marvel and Kamala Khan's just bursting on the scene. I think it's going to become even more so now that she's actually part of a video game as well. But giving them that context is vital before I have them read it. And I've had students read comics before I give them the context, and then I give them the context, and they're like, oh, I really wish I had waited (laughs) until you had told me all of that. So it really depends. Sometimes, you know, I have to talk about the artistic context. So again, going back to um, The Arrival, when I talk about wordless novels, which were a thing in the 1930s coming out of... um, German Expressionism and the experiences in post-World War I Europe and then ultimately the United States, it makes what happens in The Arrival, which is written in this century, make a lot more sense as part of that longer dialogue. When I do manga, I have to give a bit of a background, not only on, say, if I do Barefoot Again, about what Japan looked like in World War II, but I also have to give some sense of the international play that's going into the creation of modern manga and the fact that it doesn't just sort of appear out of nowhere. And that's one reason why I love comics so much is because they really are this wonderful fusion of global dialogues. The superhero comic, which we think of as being very American, would have never come into existence if it hadn't been for push-pull factors, say, sending immigrant communities to this country. French uh, bande dessinée comics are going to influence African comics today. And you have to have all of that history in order to understand why, say, an African comic looks the way it does in a Francophone country versus an Anglophone country where they're going to look more like an American or British comic. So it really depends on the comic I'm using, what the context is that I need to set up. I love how you bring in the history of the graphic novel in the area that you're talking about, as well as the history that the graphic novel brings forward. That is fantastic. So beyond the issue of giving historical context for students or perhaps general snobbery about the (laughs) genre, what other or have you experienced any other challenges in using graphic novels in the classroom? The biggest challenge, and of course, you know, I'm very lucky I get to teach at the college level. I don't have the same sort of curricular and pedagogical things holding me back in the way I would if I were teaching high school or something like that. But even at the college level, I've certainly had students who find the content overwhelming and problematic. And I think in some ways, it's even more so when you use comics than say when you assign um, a a particularly intense uh, novel. And I think that visual element comes in as that, as why that is. Um, So I've definitely had students who have objected to some of my choices in reading. I was happy that Blue is the Warmest Color was not one of those. It's a it's a pretty intense coming-of-age story uh, from France that is sexually explicit, at least in part. And so I was afraid that my students were going to have a problem with that. But most of them handled that okay. But sometimes the violence is too much. Um, and I understand that. Um, and, and I will say, you know, Barefoot Gen, when... 
the bomb uh, is dropped, it's always a hard conversation in class, even with as simple an artistic style as is being used. It's so powerful that my students, some of them really struggle with that. And then there is the element of, you're kidding, you're going to make me read a comic book. And they just, (laughs) until they sit down and read it, they don't take it seriously. So I do get a certain amount of that pushback as well. I have definitely had students say that that type of reading, especially primary source from the perspective of people who live through different eras, uh, is really difficult for them. So that really makes sense. Yeah, I think something about, yeah, the vividness of it certainly is tough for students. But, you know, as you said, on the other hand, a lot of students, I would say the majority of students find it so engaging. And I have found that some students want more and have requested more graphic novels. And along that line of challenges, we did have a very specific question, um, I guess, specific to kind of thinking about graphic novels as they're produced and consumed in East Asia, but essentially how to teach students how to have a discerning eye, specifically for historically themed graphic novels. And what prompts this question is a particular artist, um, Yoshinori Kobayashi. His comics have these very nationalistic um, tones that deny the Nanjing massacre and really depict comfort women as these uh, these were women who were sexually enslaved by the Japanese army as these really happy and enthusiastic volunteers. So, you know, in introducing students to this genre, we also want to teach them to have a kind of critical eye. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or have ever run into something similar. I've certainly run into something similar. I think as historians, we're always doing that. You know, we're always asking our students to tell us about the authors. My grad students know that's the first thing I'm going to ask them is who's the author? What's their perspective? What does that tell us about what they're presenting? And it's no different with a comic book. It's maybe more complicated because Depending on the comic book or the graphic novel, you might have an author and an illustrator, not to mention multiple authors or multiple illustrators, and that each of those people is going to impact how it's presented. You know, I can I can think of one series where I take issue with the illustrator and the way the illustrator portrays ethnic groups in a very simplistic way. And, you know, I have to ask my students, like, why do you think we're getting this almost racist depiction here in in these illustrators' works? And so I ask them to look into who the illustrator is and where that leads us in getting this kind of narrative. You can't understand Superman, for example, without understanding that it was created by two Jewish guys. And they were coming at it from a very specific place and time. So it's it's not surprising that you're going to have nationalism impact the way somebody presents any work. We could talk about Frank Miller and his choices in the post-300 <laughs> and more recent depictions, say, of the Middle East and of people from the Middle East. And you have to just untangle that with your students. And I think that's the important part is doing it with them, not doing it for them. Definitely. So we have to ask, 
Have you used Shoa in the classroom before? And if so, how did it go? I have not. I have I've really toyed with doing it. I do want to. The largest in terms of physical shape book I've ever used. It's huge and there are so many of them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and I'm sort of afraid because when I teach my comic books class, I, I have them read a lot of books. So I have not assigned Shoa for that reason that I'm just, I, I know what I'm doing to you guys. I want to, I really do. But Barefoot Gin has been the one that I just keep returning to because it's just every time it's such a powerful tool to introduce them to the concept of manga, to the concept of Japanese art as impacting this whole field. Um, Astro Boy is another one I'd like to incorporate more of, yeah. but I have, I've only used it in pieces. Unfortunately, the big downside to manga is that there's just so much of it. Mm. Everything is so big that you can't, you almost can't assign just one volume of something. So you have to have almost a dedicated semester just to manga to really make it worthwhile. Yeah, it's so true. Well, I guess it's a good problem to have in some ways. Exactly. I feel like there have been some really great things coming out lately. Um, and we were wondering, we always ask for recommendations. And I know you've given recommendations in, in some of your um, scholarly work, but I'm wondering if there's anything maybe recent, any particular favorites or just something that you particularly like to read or teach? Let's see. I, I'm terrible. I've got, I've, there is one uh, floating around that's actually about the Korean Peninsula. And uh, I have not read the whole series yet. I came across it at a Comic-Con a few years ago. And it's about the wars that involve the turtle boats. Is that correct? Oh, oh yes. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. The Chosun exactly, yeah. exactly. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. I just haven't had an opportunity to use them yet or to do the background research to offer the context. I, I love, in terms of scholarly comics, I really do actually love the series that the Oxford University Press is producing, which includes Abena, but most recently is uh, now includes Michael Vann's The Great Hanoi Rat Hunt. Oh, yes. That one's amazing. <laughs> and I think Oxford University Press producing comic books or graphic histories, as they would have it, is interesting, right? There's a certain amount of elitism being built into this idea that, well, we don't do comic books, we do graphic histories, right? But I love them for the fact that they do give you the comic book element coupled with the actual primary sources and the perspective of the historian. So all this stuff that we've been talking about for the last few minutes, it all kind of comes together in this one package. And they are trying to produce materials that bring different voices to the table, uh, voices that you might not have heard before. I love the works out of Native Realities, which is out of uh, Albuquerque. It's a whole bunch of different comic books, different series from the point of view of various Native peoples or Indigenous peoples, mostly in North America, but not entirely. They've got one about one series, which is about the World War I 
code talkers, not the World War II mm. code talkers. They also have a, a series, Super Indian, playing with the idea of the superhero, but on on the reservation and that the mashup that that entails. There's some really great work coming out of Africa in, in general, but Comic Republic is producing a lot of digital comics that are easily accessible. And I think we're going to see even more of that as, as the, the years roll by, a lot more digital comics. My favorite is actually a webcomic. It's not a series, but I just dearly love the work. It's called Kahra. She is a superhero in Cairo, and she was born out of the Arab Spring. And she's hijabi wearing, and she is sort of everything that you imagine an Islamic feminist superhero to be, including fighting femen, the white uh, feminist, the sort of radical feminists from Eastern Europe, who notably uh, take off their tops in protesting the patriarchy and the European Parliament. So it's a really interesting point of view of, you know, what feminism looks like to different people in different parts of the world. And she, she writes in both Arabic and in English. So they're very accessible as well. Wow, those are so fabulous. What great recommendations. I'm so excited. I know, thank I really you. want to read all of them. <laughs> well, thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview and having this wonderful conversation with us, Marianne. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Yes, thank you. No, seriously, thank you. This, is, this has been a lot of fun. I could talk about this kind of stuff for days. If you like East Asia for All, you could really help us out by telling others about the podcast and leaving a review on iTunes. We're lucky that we don't need funding or donations right now, but we could use your support in getting the word out. It helps other people find the podcast. For show notes and more information about the podcast, visit our website, eastasiaforall.com. You can also find us on Twitter at East Asia for All. Thanks. Something okay. like that. I don't know. Yeah, that, I think that sounded great. I completely forgot that we needed to create transition to Marianne. Um, thank God you said something because I was just like, oh, shit, I forgot about this. <laughs> I was like, we can do this. <laughs> we can ad lib. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, so should we stop this track? Yes, let's stop it. One, two, uh -oh, three. I lost you. Hmm. Okay. Well... I'm going to make an executive decision to just stop it.